Take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 5. Make your way to verse 17 when you get there. We are seeing some really incredible things happen in, in history in the book of Acts. People inside the church, people outside the church are catching a view of God for who he really is. Holy, just, perfect. And this, this causes some people to stay away, right? It says that they wouldn't dare to join them, but it causes a multitude of others to jump in, to join with them, to be saved and to run to Jesus for that salvation. And so the early church is so motivated by the power and the holiness of God that they are regularly expecting him to do incredible things when they get together. So you can imagine them, them saying, Oh, heal the sick. God can do that. Cast demons out of this person. That's no problem for God. Save a sinner from their sin. God can do that. He will do that. And so it's just like every time they got together, they expected something incredible to happen. Maybe even we might say something miraculous to happen. We've seen, as Jason mentioned with Ananias and Sapphira, we also saw with Barnabas incredible generosity. We saw with Ananias and Sapphira, we saw divine judgment come down. And this morning we get another warning against pride, against envy and jealousy. And we also see another practical example of God's power in the church. So let's read verses uh, 17 through 32 this morning. And then we'll pray. Acts 5.17 But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they set, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Would you pray with me again this morning? 
Lord, enlighten our hearts to the message and truths that we find here. We are built up. We are sustained. We are guided all because of your word that you've given us by your spirit. And so I pray that it does those things in our hearts and lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you haven't noticed, in the book of Acts, especially these last few chapters, we're starting to see a pattern develop. Okay? We're seeing this kind of uh, regular occurrence. And it kind of goes like this. Miracles and healing take place. Demons are cast out, people are restored to health, and they're done in the name of Jesus and in the power of Jesus. Well, as a result of these things, the gospel is then able to be preached boldly. The people respond, some people respond at least, in faith, in repentance, and lots of people are added to the church. And then what happens next? We've seen it twice now. Persecution comes. They get thrown in jail. They get captured. So when all of the reports of these incredible things reach the religious council, many of who were the Sadducees, are they happy? No. They're not happy. And it's strange to me that they're not happy. Shouldn't they be happy about what's going on in their city and in their town? A man who'd been unable to walk or stand for 40 years was healed instantly. Life restored. People who had been possessed by demons had their lives given back to them when those demons were cast out in the name of Jesus. Many others with physical problems were brought and then healed and made whole. And so to me, it would look like they should be happy about these things. Their community is being aided and helped and improved in not just uh, spiritual ways, although that was happening, but in very practical ways. People's lives were given, be, being given back to them. These things, I think, should have filled them with happiness. But what does verse 17 say that they were filled with? Not happiness, jealousy. Jealousy. Now, Luke uses the term filled with plenty in the book of Acts. But most of the time, he's using it to talk about being filled with the Spirit. Here, he uses it as being filled in a negative sense of being filled up and controlled by jealousy. Why? Why were they jealous? Why weren't they excited about the good things that were happening in their city, in their town? Why would this upset them rather than cause them to rejoice? Well, I think that they tipped their hand if you look forward in verse 40. We know from the text in verse 17 that it's because of jealousy, but verse 40 helps. It says, they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them, here it is, not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The problem is the name of Jesus. The problem is the resurrected Jesus. He says in chapter 4, verse 18, that we've already looked at, they've already been told, go but what's, we're going to warn you not to speak in this name anymore. Now, you'll, we saw it then. We'll see it again. They won't even bring themselves to say the name of Jesus. They just say, in this man's name. They say, you're trying to bring this man's blood upon us. They won't even say his name. What's their main problem? What's their main worry? Well, they don't want the message of Jesus 
to spread anymore among the people. Chapter 4, verse 18 tells us that too. In order that it may spread no further among the people. So these religious leaders, guys that are saying they know God, trying to teach people and should be examples of good Christianity, they didn't want the message of Jesus to spread. It's the same reason why Ananias and Sapphira lied. Hypocrisy, jealousy in particular, Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted the praise that Barnabas got, right? He sold a field and got a cool nickname from the apostles. They wanted the praise, but they didn't really want to have to give everything up. The religious council wanted fame and power. The same kind of thing that these apostles were receiving. They were filled with jealousy because they were getting this. The apostles were getting this and they weren't. But the difference was the apostles are saying all of these incredible things, all of this fame is due to the power in the name of Jesus. But this religious group, they would not lift up the name of Jesus because they wanted to be lifted up. The crowds should be around them, surely they thought, not around these these country bumpkins from Galilee who don't have any training. Why are they getting it and we're not? The more the fame of Jesus spread the less influence and power they were going to have. And they knew it. What's sad is that what they couldn't see, the Roman ruler Pilate saw very clearly when Jesus was on that mock trial with him. If you look in Matthew twenty-seven eighteen, he knew their underlying problem. He says, for he knew, talking about Pilate, that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. And an ungodly Roman ruler spotted their problem when they couldn't. They didn't want the name of Jesus to be praised. They wanted their name to be praised. And they were jealous of the apostles. Now just try to imagine the scene here in Jerusalem. You've got the high priest, the the, the most spiritual guy, so to speak, and a bunch of guys claiming to be religious leaders who were infuriated because sick people were being made well and healed and being people were being delivered from Satan's hold over their lives. The Holy Spirit was giving the leaders of Israel the signs that they always craved. And yet, their response wasn't belief. It was anger. It was jealousy. Truly, the nation of Israel is ripe for judgment here. But it wasn't just the high priests, was it? You've got an entire Sanhedrin group who was organized and they were deliberate in their opposition to the truth and to the grace of God, really. And see, I think that's the problem that we're being warned at today in this text. A big one is, is the problem with jealousy. Because jealousy doesn't just come and sit in your heart and stay there, does it? When we're jealous of someone, it may start in our heart, but eventually it comes out like, like the face that was demonstrated to us this morning. It comes out that way, doesn't it? Now, as adults, maybe we can mask it a little bit better. But it still comes out. It doesn't just stay dormant in our hearts. Jealousy comes out. Envy rages. And you know what? They always lead, when acted upon, those things always lead to consequences, don't they? And I'm not talking about good ones. I'm talking about negative ones. They always lead to negative consequences, specifically in our relationships. And so the first blank in your notes this morning is this. Jealousy needs to be confessed and repented of quickly before it wreaks havoc in our relationships. We can't carry on with jealousy creating bitterness in our hearts. 
We have to confess it, brothers and sisters. Look at what it did to these leaders. It caused them to grab hold of innocent men in anger. And in verse 18, it says that they, just throw, they threw them in prison until they could just figure out what to do with them. They just knew they had to get them to stop talking and healing in the name of Jesus. So they grabbed them and threw them in prison. This time, it's not just Peter and John like it was in chapter 4. This time, it's, it's Peter and we think all of the, the 12 apostles. All of them are there. Something to keep in mind in this, though, that I think is still interesting. If you think back to the church's prayer, after Peter and John were released and sent back the first time, isn't what's going on here in chapter 5 exactly what they've been praying for? Now, understand, they're not praying that God would send them to prison necessarily, but they prayed for boldness to speak the truth no matter the consequences. And they knew, surely, what those consequences would be. I think sometimes when we pray, maybe we don't actually think that God is listening. The early church did. They believed it. And here we see evidence of what God is doing. But I mean, how many times have we prayed something like this? Lord, give me the opportunity today to share the gospel with somebody. To speak to someone about the words of life. And then the opportunity comes up and we don't know what to say. Or we miss it because we're too focused on other things. Now, if we believed God, wouldn't we be ready to share the hope that's within us? Peter encourages us to do that in his letter. If we really believed God, shouldn't we also not be quite so surprised when people resist the message of Jesus? like the religious leaders here. First Peter chapter 4, verse 12. These are in your notes. You can follow along. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Understand, the guy who's reading this in our story in Acts, he's in prison now twice with, with, with worse things to come. He's the guy who's saying this. He says, don't be surprised when it gets bad. Continuing on, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory in God and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. See, Peter's, Peter's the guy in prison here and he's saying this to the church later on. He's saying, don't be surprised, guys. And if in fact you suffer for the name of Jesus, not because of the bad stuff that you do, but for the name of Jesus, count it joy. That is a message that the church needs to hear more of, isn't it? Because too often the church hears the message of, well, be a good person and God will bless you. Beloved, where do you see that in the early church? If you are blessed of God, Peter says you're going to suffer for his name. Now again, we don't pray God caused me to suffer. But we do pray and ought to pray, God, give me boldness to speak no matter where and no matter to who. No doubt what was happening to these apostles 
and the whole early church was going to be used by God to prepare them for future ministry. Is it possible that the fiery trial that's come upon you will be used by God in preparation for some kind of future ministry opportunity in your life? Is it possible that the financial hardship, that the health issue, that the family tension you're going through could be used by God to minister to somebody else? Keep in mind, God will never leave you or forsake you. And 1 Corinthians chapter 2 teaches us that the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves were comforted by God. You understand how many times he says comfort there? The comfort that God gives you, you are then to go be a blessing and to comfort others in the same kind of a way. And so the difficult thing that we're in in this moment in our lives, brothers and sisters, God can and will use for his glory and for your good. Do we believe that? God doesn't waste an ounce of his children's pain. Book of Revelation tells us that not even one tear falls that God isn't bottling up. DesiringGod.org, there's an editor and a writer there named Scott Hubbard. He said this, he says, the God of all comfort keeps watch over your weeping. Just because Jesus loves us and knows how to fix our problems doesn't mean he takes a shortcut through our grief. The same one who raises the dead first stops to linger with us in our sorrow, to climb down into our valley of tears and walk alongside us. I think this is vital in our preparation for ministry and Christian life. Because if we constantly equate suffering with being out of favor with God, we're going to miss so much of what Jesus wants us to know and learn. Do we believe that God is really good? Do we trust that God is really good in our lives? Do we really believe that God is sovereign over the things of this world, over the things of my life? Can I rest in this truth in the midst of heartache, or do I demand a sign of his presence? Do I demand an explanation? These apostles, in contrast to the religious leaders, they don't seem to be demanding anything of God, do they? They don't demand any explanation of God. As why, Lord, why have you sent us to prison again? They also seem to not be putting up a whole lot of resistance to this captivity, to their imprisonment. They must really believe that God was going to be with them, even in a prison cell. Thankfully, they're not in that cell very long. You can see in verse 19, it says, But during the night, the angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. So verse 19 starts with that, that uh, term of contrast, the word but. So at one moment... The apostles are in the hands of men, but in the next moment, they're in the hands of God through his angel who visits them in prison. I also think that several places in this text, there's some divine irony going on. And, and I don't, I chuckle at these things. Here's the first one that I'll point out. The Sadducees are a big part of the Sanhedrin, who are this group of people who are saying they're spiritual leaders, but imprisoning people speaking about Jesus. The Sadducees are a group that don't believe in the afterlife. They don't believe in resurrection. They don't believe in angels or demons. And who comes to their jail and sets God's people free? An angel. I think that's funny. The miraculous release of these prisoners 
I think, too, is just another blow to the conscience of the, the men on the Sanhedrin here. What could be more fitting than that the Holy Spirit would force them to confront spiritual things? And don't forget, the gospel message was proclaimed in these guys' ears over and over, too. They were hearing the same preaching that the people who responded in faith were hearing. Sadly, though, most of them were quite willing to rationalize these events and excuse them. I think about it. These are the same guys who rationalized away the resurrection of Jesus. A guy who they had a hand in sending to the cross is now up walking around and they just chalk it up to some kind of coincidence or excuse it away. So if they could, if they could explain that away, surely they could explain away any kind of spiritual nature to the release of these Christians from prison. The guards at the prison, apparently, they don't even know that the prisoners are gone, right? If you, if you look in verse 22, they go in later to find them, to bring them to the religious council, and they're not there. God had miraculously delivered these guys from prison. And their lives and well-being were spared for a purpose. And I want us to see this this morning. Look at verse 20. The angel comes and he says, hey, I'm, I'm releasing you from this prison cell. And then he gives them an instruction. He says, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Now the truth is, if you know church history and you know what's coming... All of these apostles would suffer greatly later on. And all but one of them would be martyred for Christ, including Barnabas. I appreciate what uh, Pastor David Gusick has to say about this. He says, this reminds us that we should trust God for miraculous things and wish to see them more and more. But knowing that he also has a purpose when he does not deliver with a miraculous hand. I think of... Daniel in the lion's den. I think of uh, the, the guys in Babylon who wouldn't bow to Nebuchadnezzar. They all said, look, you could do with us what you please. And we believe that God will save us. But even if he doesn't, he's still good. These guys were freed from prison, from bondage, but not just to go and to live life for themselves. Not just to go and do whatever they wanted. Notice this. Followers of Jesus are set free with a purpose to go, stand firm, and speak the words of life. This is our call, and it, and it matches with what Jesus has called them to do in the beginning of Acts and at the end of the Gospels. Go into all the world, making disciples, preaching, teaching. So verse 21 of Acts 5, that's what they do. They get right to it. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to preach, to teach. Now the message from the Lord through the angel wasn't, hey, escape from prison. The message was go and explain, go and teach. The message wasn't run away from danger. It was actually go towards it, wasn't it? Now, there was a point in time, not long before these events in Acts, where these apostles would not have responded in this way, right? Because we know the gospel writers, almost all of them mentioned this to their own shame that they all left him at the cross and fled. They all went and hid. But now something's changed. The first thing, the first instinct when 
they're told to go is actually just to go. It's not to hide. It's not to run away. It's to go. And not just to go out into the different places, but they're called to go right back to where they were arrested in the first place. Go right back and teach the same thing that's got you sent here to begin with. They were sent out to go teach about life in Jesus. Not a creed, not a bunch of rules. They taught about Jesus, who Peter's already said is the author of life. He even claims to be life him itself. Remember John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's Jesus. The angel says, go in to teach them about Jesus, and they do. Now, if they go back to the temple and are teaching there at daybreak and in the morning, who should have seen them when they came in that day? The high priest? The other spiritual guys on this council? They should have saw him when they came in that next day, but they didn't. Why? Well, they must have passed on worship that, that morning because they had a more sinister agenda, sinister agenda to take care of, didn't they? They had to get together and figure out what to do with these Jesus preachers. And so they skipped worship, it would seem. They didn't see him in there. And they came to conspire against the Christians. And I think this gives us a little bit, I don't want to go too far on this, but it gives us a little um, insight into the Christian experience here. It's this. Persecution, we expect, will come from the world that doesn't understand or know the things about God. But sometimes the most painful opposition comes from people inside the church who call themselves Christians. These religious leaders, they gathered for a meeting and they sent officers. They said, hey, go bring these guys back to us so that we can figure out what to do with them. Well, you can see the doors were still locked, but they were gone. They had flown the coop. They were back out in the temple teaching. And you can imagine how this confused them, especially if they're not willing to receive any kind of spiritual existence here. It says that it greatly perplexed them. That's a great word. That's your word of the week, by the way. Use the word perplex at some point. That'd be great. It's very descriptive. This perplexed them terribly. And I, I got to believe that the guards who come back, they, they say, look, we've got some good and bad news here. The good news is the doors are still locked. Your prison works. But the bad news is the prisoners are gone. Here's some more of that divine irony I've mentioned before. The guards were carefully keeping empty jail cells secure. They were, out, they were gone. But the guards were there making sure no one could get in. Another one, the highest powers of Israel were gathered to judge prisoners they didn't have. Another one. While the, the leaders are confused, trying to figure out and understand what had happened to their prisoners, they were told that the apostles, these guys, their prisoners, were out preaching and doing the exact same thing in the same place that got them arrested in the first place. After everything, they just went back to preaching. This was nothing less than God's power and work through the Spirit in them. There's a lesson here for us today, believers today. When we're utterly convinced of the truth of Christ's resurrection, and when we know personally the presence and power of his Holy Spirit, we can't help but speak about him. It's something that we cannot stop doing. Peter's already explained this to them once, and now he's getting ready to say it again. Verse 26 says that the captain and the officers, 
They went to go get him from preaching, but they didn't, weren't going to do it by force. They weren't going to put him in shackles because they were afraid of being stoned, of what the people might do. Now, it's not a surprise to me that these religious people were concerned what the people thought of them because that's been the driving force behind pretty well everything that they've done. They want to remain in power. They want to have influence. They want to have control. What does surprise me a little bit here is that the apostles seem to just go back before them without any kind of struggle, without any kind of uh, stink at all. I mean, think about it. They probably could have incited a mob here. They probably could have said, hey, guys, are you going to let them take us away again? I mean, the Sanhedrin, the, the high priest, they were already afraid of what the people might do. Surely the apostles could have done this, but they don't. Why? Could it be that they knew another opportunity before the Sanhedrin was going to be placed before them to preach the gospel? That these men influential in the city might be able to hear the gospel again because they were put there in front of them? Could it be that they were willing to endure detainment for the chance just to preach the gospel again? Verse 27, verse 28 explain, this is exactly what happens. So after they're scolded by the high priest, you can see he says, look, we strictly charged you to not teach in this name. And yet here you fill Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, put yourself in the shoes of the high priest this morning, okay? Religious guy, you know a bunch of Old Testament passages. If you were going to question Peter, would your, what would your question be? After knowing everything that had happened, what would your question be? Because I was thinking about that this week. And my first question wouldn't be, why are you still teaching about Jesus? My first question would be, how in the world did you escape from a locked jail cell? It doesn't make any sense. But they didn't care about that. That wasn't the question that they asked. That wasn't why they scolded them. I think this is just another example of these religious leaders' misplaced focus, hardened hearts. A lame man had been totally healed. Many people were free from demon possession. A dozen people vanished from a locked jail cell. These are miraculous things that I would want answers to, but the council just ignores them. Because they're focused on control. They're focused on themselves. They're, they miss the miraculous because they're so focused on me. And I wonder, do we, do we do the same thing sometimes? Because we can miss some incredible works of God. And I suspect we do miss many of them because we're too wrapped up in me. In my life. In maintaining some kind of semblance of control that I think that I have. And we miss some miraculous things that God is really doing. I think you can see the guilty conscience of the priest when he says here, he says, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Again, they, he, couldn't even, he couldn't even get himself to say Jesus' name here. Couldn't get himself to do it. He says, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. You know, they must have forgotten that not long before this, at that mock trial with Pilate, Matthew 27 captures it this way. He says, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he symbolically, he took water and washed his hands before the people saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And here's how 
this same group of guys responded at Jesus' trial. These guys said, along with all the people, they said, His blood be on us and on our children. And now they're trying to blame the apostles for what they've already received and done. And this is the danger of hypocrisy. This is the danger of jealousy and envy. It begins to be a cancer within our hearts that causes us to miss who God is. The apostles were out there boldly preaching redemption. They were preaching forgiveness through the blood of Jesus. They weren't preaching guilt and condemnation. That's what these religious leaders felt though, wasn't it? They brought it on themselves. That's not what the apostles were teaching. The apostles' preaching was aimed at applying the redeeming blood of Christ to their hearts. They didn't want it. They wanted to pass the buck, to blame somebody else. We feel guilty because of you and because of this message. But in reality, they had brought that on themselves. I don't want us to fall in the same trap. We need to understand that Jesus didn't die to condemn you. He died to save you. John 3.17 says explicitly that. He didn't die. God didn't send his son to condemn the world, but to save the world. That it might be saved through him. Jesus didn't die to condemn you. He died to save you. Verses 29, 30, 31, 32, 33. These give us a little bit of kind of a blueprint for civil disobedience. We talked a little bit about that in our our big Sunday school time earlier today. We're not going to focus too much on that. But I do want us to notice their answer yet again. When they were told, choose. In essence, that's what they were told, choose. Listen to us and stop talking about Jesus, about this guy, or face the consequences. And what was their response? No, it was civil, it was respectful, as I'm sure you could get. And yet they disobeyed, didn't they? They said, who should we obey? We have to obey God and not men. Brothers and sisters, if we need to obey, disobey the laws of our land, let it be with this in our hearts. Not just rioting and rebellion for the sake of being right, but instead that we might say, look, I have to obey God because his law is higher. His law is better. We talked about this back in Acts chapter 4. If we are given that choice, the land, the law of the land that's telling us to disobey God or God himself, brothers and sisters, you know the choice. You know the only option that you have. We pray that God would give us the boldness to walk in that. And on behalf of of Christians that are there, the rest of these apostles, Peter does that. He says that very thing. He says, look, we have to obey God rather than men. And then he launches into this pointed and incredibly convicting short message. And we're going to talk more about this next week, not today. But I want us to notice how the leaders respond to this. Because he says some some hard things. He says in verse 30 through 32, he says, The God of our fathers, and he's saying our like yours too, of our father raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel, that's them too, and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. What a testimony. You, can you imagine being a new Christian 
Like maybe you just heard Peter's message after they were released from prison the first time. You heard that and you're like, I need to be saved. And you're, you're saved and added to the church. Now the guy who you look up to is thrown in jail again. You might be thinking, oh man, it was fun while it lasted. It was pretty good. But surely he's not going to come back the same again the second time. And then he comes out and he, in civil disobedience and godly rebellion, says, no, I can't listen to you because God is greater. Imagine what that would do for your witness. The book that's filled of people like this, Fox's Book of Martyrs. What does that do when we read it? Now, it saddens us to be sure, but doesn't it fill you with hope and boldness? If you've never read it, I would encourage you. Sit down. I think it's available online for free. You can look it up. Fox's Book of Martyrs, F-O-X-E. And just read through it. These are men and women who gave it all for the sake of Jesus. What does that do for our testimony in 2023? Shouldn't it embolden us? Shouldn't it make us even more excited to go share these things? I don't want us to have hearts like the, fair, like the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin today, though. I don't want us to read through this and be like, man, that's cool that they preached that kind of way. That's cool that this message had that much impact. Guys, it's there for you too. The message that they preached saying to these religious leaders, you nailed Jesus to the cross, it could be preached to me too and to you. We did it. By our sin, we contributed to the death of the Savior. And yet, the reason why he was willing to do that is so that we might be saved. You can be saved today. Miracles can still be performed in your heart and change you from a heart of stone to a heart that can be molded by the Father through His Spirit. This should, I think, have, have humbled this group of religious elite, but it didn't. It should have caused them to bow before a just and merciful God, but it didn't. And so many people can hear the truth of the gospel today, and I would think it would change a heart, and it doesn't. It's not because the gospel is ineffective at all. Sometimes our response is the response of this religious group in verse 33. Look at that with me. They weren't glad. They weren't humbled. It says when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Now, there may be some who hear the message of the gospel of Jesus and grind their teeth in anger. The vast majority of people just hear the message of the gospel and they just say, okay, that's, that's good for you. And they're indifferent to it. They reject it. I don't want this to be us today. I don't want that to be the response of our heart. Jesus freely gave his life. He shed his blood so that you might be saved. Don't harden your heart like this group of guys. Don't become angry. Don't Try and ignore him to keep up whatever control you think you have in your life. It won't work. Repent. Look to Jesus. Believe in him and be saved. That's our hope. That's the message of the gospel. Brothers and sisters in Christ, believers, remember these faithful brothers who were miraculously released from prison. They weren't freed to just go and live their life like normal. They were freed with a purpose. You are freed from the bondage of sin for the same purpose. To go to where people need to hear the words of life. To stand firm on the truths of the gospel and to speak life in the name and power of Jesus. Go, stand firm, speak life to those around you. That's how the world hears the message of everlasting life in the name of Jesus Christ. 
That's the message that we have to go and to share. And so be encouraged and challenged this morning. Go, stand firm, speak life. Because the world needs it. I invite you to pray along with me this morning as we close. Lord, I pray for those in this room who know you. I pray for boldness on their part. I pray for a restlessness in their spirit for sharing the gospel. That a day doesn't go by where every Christian here feels the nudge and the the calling on their life to go and to share, to stand firm on your truth and to speak life to those who need to hear it. And I pray that you give them boldness, give us boldness to do this. And Lord, I pray for those who are listening this morning who don't have a relationship with you. Maybe it's because of hypocrisy. Maybe it's because of anger. Maybe it's because of jealousy. But I pray, Lord by your grace and through the blood of Jesus, that you would save them, that you would heal them. You would cast out whatever's keeping them in bondage this morning, that they might go and boldly share their testimony with others. Lord, I pray that we might not respond to the message of the gospel in indifference. I pray that we would make a firm decision one way or another here this morning. And I pray, Lord, that it's one of submission to you, of humbling ourselves before your throne. Every knee will bow one day. And I pray, Lord, that you might cause many to bow here now. In Jesus' name, amen.